Welcome to SpacePod. I'm Carrie Nugent. I'm a professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Bill McKinnon, who is a professor of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. He was also awarded the 2023 Kuiper Prize for Outstanding Contributions to Planetary Science. Welcome to the show. Oh, lovely to be here. We are recording on November 29th, 2023. I am drinking this Mila drink, which is watermelon water from Vietnam. Uh, What are you going to be trying? Well, at the moment, I'm drinking espresso from a can, but I will be trying a commercial eggnog liqueur because it is holiday time, which (laughs) I haven't tried yet. I'm very excited for you to try that. It's like wine in terms of its alcohol content. So I think I'll wait for a minute before I even. I'm going to try mine. (laughs) I guess I could open it and taste it. I will say this Mela or Mila watermelon water is totally delicious. I love it and would totally drink it again. Does it taste like watermelon? That's the important question. It's like not too sweet. It's just like eating a delicious watermelon, but with no chewing. Okay. All right. Well, I'll let you know. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe a little bit too fortified. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's what you should mix with your coffee. I think I could do that. In fact, I'm going to do that exactly right now. (laughs) Perfect. So you have made several important contributions to planetary science over the decades. And I think we need like 100 podcast episodes to talk about all of them. But I thought we might start with just one of them. And one of your contributions was the idea that an impact on Pluto had formed its moon, Charon. Can you talk about what led you to that idea? You know, you have to sort of set the Wayback Machine for the 1980s, or even the 1970s, where people knew almost nothing about Pluto. And I've always been attracted to things that are remote and unknown. One of the pleasures of of that is, too, you can read everything that anyone has ever published about (laughs) a body like Pluto, and then you scratch your head and say, why are they saying these ridiculous things? It's because only like a handful of people even care. As an example of, you know, stuff that people might say, someone could detect like Dale Cruikshank did in 1976 that the spectrum of solid methane was observable in the infrared. So it meant there were methane ice on the surface of Pluto, which really has to be cold. But then people would extrapolate saying, oh, there's methane ice on Pluto. That means Pluto is made of methane ice. Well, no. It's like that's like saying the Earth is made of water, even though it's a water world. So getting back directly to your question, I think I basically said, how are we going to make such a giant moon, much bigger than our moon as compared to the Earth? And to me, the idea of all the angular momentum in that system meant that a good way to bring that in would be through a big impact. And if I was influenced by anything, it was by speculations that maybe asteroids had satellites. Mind you, this isn't, no one had ever seen an asteroid satellite, so it was all completely conjecture. But people I respected had worked on this topic. And while I don't think Pluto is a large asteroid, it certainly is not the biggest world in the solar system, as we know. And I sort of took it from there. One of the things I said in my Kuiper lecture was, of course, I think it's the right idea, but I also think it's inevitable. I don't think, I think if I never existed, somebody else would have proposed this eventually. And I have to say with some chagrin is that I did not extrapolate to the next level and say, what about the Earth's moon? 
So this idea was independent of the ideas that other people came up with about the origin of our own moon, which actually had been at least published in abstract form, but I had never heard of this idea. I had not read these abstracts. And even when I was a graduate student, no one had ever mentioned, hey, you know, some crazy people have proposed that the moon's, the Earth's moon was formed in a giant impact. I, I like to think I would a little light bulb would have gone off in my head <laughs> if, I, if I'd heard that, but I didn't. But it's basically the same idea. The two systems are parallel enough that the people who have carried on this work with numerical computer models, people who study the origin of the Earth's moon tend to study the origin of Pluto's moon because they're, they're two different flavors of the same type of thing. What is it like to make a prediction or put out a theory like that and then watch the data roll in over a long period of time? It's gratifying. It's fun. Um, is it like stressful? Are you? Do you ever like no, see a new result and get worried? No, no, no. <laughs> you know, because we had been able to figure out the density of Pluto from we kind of knew its size or roughly, and that it was also when you study Pluto in those days, you find, you figure out that not only is it not made of methane, which is a very light ice that has the density half the, half the density of water, but it's really mostly a rocky world, two thirds or maybe sixty percent, you know, plus or minus rock and then the rest are ices of some sort mostly water ice part of the putting together the pieces at that time was that not only was pluto's moon forming in, in an impact but pluto had a cousin and that cousin became an, a moon of neptune and we call that triton so that was all part of the same paper actually and uh you can go all back back to 1930s where pluto was discovered and somebody says oh look Pluto, Pluto's orbit crosses Neptune. And oh, look, Pluto's rotation rate matches that of Triton's orbital period. Maybe they were the same. Maybe Pluto is an escaped satellite of Neptune and Triton was sent retrograde, sent backwards through some catastrophe. But you have to reverse the order of everything. What we now understand is like the Kuiper Belt, it was full of objects, it was full of dwarf planets. And so um, it's interesting, Neptune was able to get one by having triton or proto-triton come by and collide with something or maybe some other dynamical mechanism but it ended up in the, the cockeyed orbit that it, that it had anyway that's a long-winded preamble to saying triton should be like pluto and so i wrote a paper with a grad student saying if triton is like pluto it'll have this density and this is in a time when people had no idea how big triton was there were predictions that it was had the density of gold which would be great but it's <laughs> not true and it turned out to have exactly the density of Pluto, plus or minus. And uh, I suppose that just could have turned out to be wrong or just had been affected by something that I don't know. But you go, hmm, maybe, maybe, maybe this chain of logic has some validity. And this is not to say that everything that anybody or myself or anyone has ever thought of turns out to be right. So let me give you another story. <laughs> That's okay. Yes, please. So long ago, not long, in the 80s now, right? We know that there's something funny going on at Enceladus. It's very, very bright. The, the Voyager mission has gone by Enceladus and seen parts of it that are very smooth. And people have even speculated that maybe Enceladus is an active world and, and that it has resurfaced itself and has refreshed itself. And maybe even you can even find a, a graphic that shows an eruption of water on Enceladus. Now, no this, way. Is, this is this is, you know, it's a cartoon. Yeah. 
There's no evidence for geysers on Enceladus in 1980 or 81. Okay, but we also knew that there was this funny particle ring around Saturn called the E-ring. Small, micron-sized water ice particles in orbit around Saturn where they shouldn't last forever because they're so small. So there had to be a source. I spent months working on a, my theory, which is mine, where, in which a comet hits Enceladus and spews a huge pile of debris and vapor and water that boils and makes these little particles and creates the E-ring but it's a transient thing. It's a stochastic thing. And I presented this in a meeting and the abstract even got referenced for years, but I was never convinced I could really confine the E-ring to what, because impacts will blow stuff to a great distance. I tried to imagine that the particles would get charged and then they would be affected by Saturn's magnetic field. But in the end, it was, I was trying to push a round peg into a square hole. And so I didn't write that paper, which is good. Because we know it's not the right answer. Now, right, after the Cassini mission, we can see the eruptions coming from Enceladus. We can see those eruptions feeding the E-ring. So, you know, okay. <laughs> That's how it goes, you know. But it's still interesting to think about what happens to all the material that happens in impacts. And other people have have done other kinds of, you know, very clever work relating things like spherule beds on the earth, that is little bits of glass beads that are created in, in ancient impacts that have disappeared from the geologic record. But the spherule beds, uh, billions of years old, can still be found in, you know, certain sedimentary layers that survive in old rocks on the earth. So we, we do have a record of impacts in from these sorts of processes. Do you ever... Think about, you know, like why you didn't write a paper that was like, this probably is a bad idea. You know what I mean? Like, it's probably not a comet. And I just kind of always wonder about like our publication of null results, right? That saves somebody else from going through all that math again. And that's it's a very important point. You know, usually when you've done enough work on something, I find, and I always tell my students this, that whatever you're interested in, just start reading and start thinking. And I think you'll find that there are gaps. There's things that people haven't looked at. There's alternative possibilities. And you'll almost certainly discover something, which is, of course, one of the most wonderful things about the solar system. You know, I, I've been teaching for 40 years now, and I can remember I teach an introductory course on the solar system, not every term and not every year. But, you know, what was in that course in 1985 is not what's in that course in 2023. We've learned so much. And there's so much more to discover. So it's always, it's never boring. It's always exciting and interesting. And to answer your question directly, should we publish null results? Of course. And we should also publish results that are not necessarily correct if there's some germs of, of truth in them that might be applied elsewhere. Even if this model for the E-ring, which is really what that was, was wrong, it would have been worthwhile to publish it simply as a, a model of the vaporization and boiling of water from a cometary impact on an icy surface. I've actually published a paper where I began to suspect towards the end of it, you know, this may not be right, but at least it can be proven or disproven once we get the right data. This, this has to do with the shape of Enceladus again. Enceladus is a fascinating little world, right? So it's, it has an odd shape, and it doesn't match the the gravitational field that the that the moon exhibits. And 
another quote, clever idea, and I'm putting air quotes in here now for uh, those of you in radio land, um, was that maybe this distortion of the surface is due to a distorted core, a distorted rock core. And all jumping ahead, we know Enceladus has a rock core now, but we didn't really know that then. And so the idea was if, if it was out around in the right way, it could explain the actual shape of Enceladus. But what part of his paper was a very direct statement saying like, when we get good gravity from Cassini, we will know the answer. And the good gravity from Cassini came, and it's not the answer, but it's okay, because that's, that is, in fact, testable science so often. I'm particularly interested in your perspective on planetary science as someone who's observed it for a while. Yeah. And I asked you this question at a conference, but I'd love to ask it again so everyone else can hear it. What is one thing we used to think about our solar system that turned out to be spectacularly wrong? Well, you know, there are things that a, a given person might say that can be wrong. That's not sort of the same thing. And then there are things that we just don't know about. You know, what is the surface of Mars like before we ever saw any pictures, you know, in, in 1965 from Mariner 4? But the thing that struck me when you asked me that question before was that there are things that are so basic that nobody even thinks about them, not even to question them. So ever since we figured out the architecture of the solar system. And, you know, this is, you know, Copernicus and Tycho and Galileo and then Newton. We have this beautiful idea of these planets that are pretty much aligned in their orbital tracks around the sun. And this leads to the nebular hypothesis in the 18th century, you know, that there was a disk of gas and dust that condensed and flattened and made a planetary system somehow, right? We know didn't, back in the 18th century, people didn't talk about planetesimals and so forth. And, but it does, doesn't matter. Um, and we saw analogs. We saw the satellites of Jupiter were kind of a miniature planetary system. And then we found similar little planetary satellite systems around Saturn and Uranus. Neptune is the exception, of course, because Triton made hash of everything when it got captured. Um, so it was just natural to assume that if you wanted to figure out the origin of the solar system, that the solar system looked like it did today. Maybe the individual bodies evolved in some way. They acquired craters or the atmospheres escaped or, you know, whatnot. The continents drifted on the Earth. But the whole idea that not just asteroids and comets are kind of a sort of bouncing around the solar system in, in uh, unstable orbits, but the planets themselves have not always been where they are today, I think uh, just is an astonishing idea People grow up with it maybe naturally now, but it certainly wasn't natural to anybody from the mid 20th century that even giant Jupiter didn't form where we see it now. And of course, this is, there's a chain of argument, but it's basically that in the formation of any solar system, there's so much material moving around that even the big, the big guys or gals, they, they respond. And, and we have this beautiful story of how the, the four giant planets, or maybe there were five or even six, if there were extra ice giants around, were much more compact. And then once the solar nebula itself, which is a stabilizing influence, was all the gas disk, disappears because of ultraviolet and X-ray radiation from the sun, early sun and solar intense solar wind and so forth, then things are kind of set loose. Things become unstable and they rearrange. And this creates the Kuiper belt. It plants Pluto and all its friends 
and these protected re resonances. It you know drives the scattering that allows big bodies like Triton to end up orbiting Neptune. But the planets uh, move, and now we look. Of course, now it's so obvious. We look at look at exoplanets. Most of these planetary systems are pretty crazy. There are a lot of very disturbed, inclined orbits. A lot of giant Jupiters orbiting super close to their host stars, so they're roasting. All of these kinds of things become more explainable when we understand that planetary systems can go through instabilities. And uh, no science fiction author of my youth ever imagined <laughs> that these things would occur. In the first Star Trek, the original series, Star Trek TOS, you know, they never drop out of orbit and see anything cuckoo. They always see something like our system. It is, I think, so hard to imagine that something as big as Jupiter could be moved, yeah. that it was just kind of outside the imagination of everybody for quite a long time. It's, it's a monster, uh, but it's it responds to the other ones. Okay, it's like the four of them, let's just sorry, assume there were four, they're like an accordion. As they interact with all the remaining smaller bodies in the solar system, it accordions out. Neptune moves the farthest, Uranus moves left, Saturn moves even less. Jupiter is a massive anchor. It outweighs the rest of them combined. And it moves in response inward, maybe not too much. And of course, there are theories, which now these are more speculative, in which Jupiter might have really traveled. And you may have heard the, the, the buzzword with this is called the Grand Tack. This is a separate matter than the, quote, the instability that I've been talking about. So one idea is because people see these hot Jupiters, they say, well, what prevented Jupiter from getting too close to our sun? We obviously don't want it to get too close because then we would not be here. And one idea is that uh, if you get Saturn close enough to Jupiter, they stop drifting inward and they actually move outward. And so there's at least this just so story that Jupiter starts to travel in. Saturn is kind of coming up behind it. And only when it gets up to Jupiter and it grabs it, then they start moving back out. But in this grand tax scenario, Jupiter moves all the way into the region of the asteroid belt, which is pretty wild and then finally settles sort of where, where it is. We don't actually have a lot of hard evidence that particular scenario occurred. It would certainly do a lot of violence to everything in the inner solar system. It was actually the, the driver, even for that idea, is that this would help explain the small mass of Mars. But there are more conventional alternative explanations for a small Mars. What is something we conceive of today that will perhaps prove to be really wrong in the future? That's a, that's a maybe a tougher question. You know, I no softballs here. Sorry, <laughs> it's all right. Well, you know, it's like you think about the big pictures of of you know what's the origin of the universe, what's the origin of the solar system, what's the origin of life. The origin of life is something that is um, of great interest to a lot of people, and uh, we can certainly see the pathways. But as we go back in time, things become murkier. The evolution of life on Earth, uh, you think of it the way Darwin thought of it. The idea was that species could evolve through, uh, you get mutations and favorable mutations would be selected for. And these would accumulate. If you go far enough back, people begin to suspect that there was not just this vertical evolution of the genetic information, but there's also horizontal transfer and that some of these ideas are kind of like the 
mitochondria being a symbiont to a, an early cell and, that, and then becoming sort of incorporated into the into to the lineage but the here's the idea i think is that before there ever really was a cell like a package like a baggie that could keep everything from the inside and the outside there were probably these things these moieties whatever you want to call them some sort of self-replicating organic something or others and they're all floating around and they're not it's like everybody is having interchanges with everybody else and sort of like there's this horizontal evolution stage of evolution which i think is very well i i only glimpse it through a glass darkly because it is not my field but there's this early world that we don't really have any real conception of how this is going to work and i think the way we we think of exploring mars think of those samples that are being collected on mars being left in depots and also being stored inside the belly of the perseverance rover do they really you know we're going to be looking for what cellular remains we're going to be looking for things that remind us of uh, blue green algae or 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 what what if mars never got beyond this horizontal gene pool sort of world you know i just have this suspicion that we are so far from understanding the beginnings of organic evolution that we don't know <laughs> it's it's almost inconceivable. You know, you could get somebody on this podcast who say something much more clever than I would. Uh, but no, that's... I think that's so interesting because I feel like you have this perspective and and this sense, right, of like where we're a little bit wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's so interesting to to hear you explain that. It's really great. I mean, you know, it's like it's it's easier for me to talk about the origin of the solar system as a whole because. We do have meteorites. We have these early meteorites, and they do tell us a lot about processes in the solar nebula. They tell us about processes on the very early parent bodies, some of which have been completely broken apart. And we just they're just pieces of these, you know. When you look at it, when you have an iron, an iron meteorite, you know, you are looking at the piece of a core of a small world that no longer exists. Organic evolution on the earth. We have no rocks. You have no rocks from the first 500 or more million years of Earth history. We have zircons that have survived because they're almost indestructible. And zircons, yeah, are these little tiny crystals. Yeah. And they, they are the survivors. They have been weathered out of the, their, what we call a protolith, their original host rock. Their host rocks are gone. It's only the zircons that are left, and they end up, end up in later sedimentary rock or even granites and things, but they don't hold the record of organic evolution on the earth. So maybe Mars is the place to go. So thank you so much, Professor McKinnon, for being on the show. Now that we've heard all about formation of various minor planets and maybe the future of solar system exploration, we get to hear a fun fact about Bill. <laughs> I like to use my license plates to advertise planetary <laughs> exploration. <laughs> And so for a long, long time, I drove a small Honda Prelude and its license plate was simply Triton. So that's a shout out to Triton. <laughs> but more recently, I had to, I bought a newer car and, you know, my kids are going, oh, we should name it Pluto. No, no, it's been there and done that. You know? So I wanted to look to the future, but I didn't want to be too obvious. And so, you know, in Missouri, where I live, right, you get six letters or numbers. So Europa is six letters, but Europa is also Europe. It just means Europe. So 
nobody would necessarily know what I was talking about. So I decided to use the, the number two and then the letters Y-R-O-P-A. So this is a little mnemonic and somebody has to say it out loud before they'll understand what I'm talking about. Maybe someday they'll ask me what, what it means <laughs> at the gas station. <laughs> so, that's delightful. But, <laughs> but that's where I'm going. I'm going to Europa. We'll launch in October of next year. So it's yeah. So exciting. Yeah, so, yeah. It's like 10 and a half months. Yeah. 10 and a half months. That's going to be great. And juice is already on the way. Yeah, on its way. So, on its way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. It was really delightful talking to you. Okay. Well, I'm going to take another sip of this. Uh, <laughs> One for luck. <laughs> One for luck. I'm actually finishing this watermelon water. Yeah. I don't always I'm, finish space pod drinks because sometimes they're terrible. But this I'm is not going to be finishing this bottle. <laughs> I can guarantee you. <laughs> not tonight. I'm saving for New Year's or something. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Again, thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron 3030. Huge thanks to Deltron 3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.